probably two or three episodes of season one where they were suggested by listeners. Yeah. And we're always keen um, to, to do those episodes. Definitely. So, season finale was a suggested yes, one. Yes, it was, yeah. Um, Jodie Jones. Elena Hara. Yeah. So Mark's going to be kicking off season two because I kicked off season one. Um, and he's got a case that he's going to share with us. So take it away. So today's episode takes us to Wembley in northwest London, home of the world famous Wembley Stadium. And in 2006, just as the finishing touches were being made to this iconic landmark, one woman's life was about to come to a brutal end in the shadow of its famous white arch. You've made the biggest mistake of your fucking life because your throat will be slit tonight. So get your fucking bitch of a wife out your house now. And I'm not joking, you've fucked with the wrong person. I want my car back now or you're fucking dead and your wife's going to be dead as well. These were the words spoken to Fadi Nasri in March 2006 by a Scottish woman called Lisa. Fadi, a 33-year-old businessman from Wembley, had sold a vehicle to Lisa in a business deal that had clearly turned sour. Fadi ran a limousine hire company and had sold a limousine to Lisa on the condition that it would be returned to him for a short period of time so that he could honour a number of bookings he had already taken in London. But when Lisa took delivery of the vehicle, she soon realised that she'd been sold a bit of a donkey. The car wasn't roadworthy and believing Faddy had conned her, she backed out of her part of the deal to return the car. Faddy, not the sort of guy to be messed with, was seriously pissed off with her insubordination and drove up to Scotland before taking the vehicle without Lisa's knowledge. Hence the phone call in which Lisa made those threats. Oh, now I can kind of understand it a little bit, like that would piss you off a lot, but it still seems a bit extreme to me. It is pretty harsh. So that's it. That's the case. That's a crime. Oh, okay. So she rang up and... No, I know it's not, though, because not, I know the you know, name. Do I know you? the okay. name. And, but I don't know that much about the case, I'm going to be okay. honest with you. So this is going to be really interesting. So that would have been the end had Fadi's wife, Nisha Patel-Nasri, not been stabbed to death outside her home just two months after this woman had threatened her life. Had Fadi conned the wrong person? Had Lisa made good on her promise to kill his wife, Nisha? Or was there something more sinister going on? On the evening of Sunday the 6th of May in 2006, Nisha was home alone. This wasn't unusual. Faddy would often work late or be out socialising with friends. But when there was a knock at the door at around 10pm, Nisha was understandably a little bit concerned as to who might be calling round at such a late hour mm, i wouldn't even answer the door at that time of night. i don't think i especially no. on a sunday night yeah it's like, weird i'd probably be in bed i'm gonna be honest already i'm in my pajamas already today today like recording yeah. this like christ that would worry me as well so as nisha approached the front door she could just about make out the shape of three men stood on her doorstep warily opening the door with the chain on good Sensible. girl good nisha asked what the men wanted they made up some kind of bullshit excuse and said they needed to come into the house, but Nisha, clearly suspicious of their motives, refused to allow them in and hurriedly shut the door. Okay, good girl. At which point, one of the men produced a crowbar and attempted to force his way into the house. Jesus. Panicking by this time, Nisha raced to call 999. However, before she could dial the numbers, the men had fled, having realised the door could not be lifted from its frame. 
Nisha called her husband and he returned to the house straight away. She begged him to install CCTV and Fadi promised he would arrange this but advised her in the meantime at least, keep the door securely locked whenever I'm not in the house. Fast forward five days to Thursday the 11th of May and Nisha is once again home alone. At 11.35pm, Faddy heads out to play snooker with a friend. Do you know what? I would be like, you're not going out until you've got the CCTV Especially that late. Who goes out at 11.35 Honestly, to play snooker? I would just literally be like, your wife is like terrified from five days ago. Don't go out and play snooker. After Faddy leaves, Nisha counts a day's takings from her hairdressing business before heading upstairs to get ready for bed. Five minutes later, a man quietly lets himself into the house using a key he has managed to obtain and heads to the kitchen where he grabs a large knife. Nisha hears a noise and begins to head downstairs, but before she gets to the bottom of the stairs, she sees a large man running towards her and immediately makes for the front door, which is literally within grasping distance. Before she gets there, however, the intruder stabs her in the groin. Badly injured but still conscious, Nisha manages to get out of the front door and onto the driveway, but her attacker isn't giving up and marches after her. Next door, Geraldine Thompson hears a scream and wakes her husband, Luca. Racing to the front window, she hears a familiar voice screaming, help, help, he's following me, and she sees Nisha being chased from the house with blood spurting from her leg. The couple race outside to find their neighbour crouching in distress and screaming, I've been stabbed. They look up and notice a thick-set Afro-Caribbean man calmly walking away from the scene. Nisha clutches at her wound and repeatedly says, I've been stabbed. Unbeknown to her neighbours at this point, Nisha's main artery has been severed and as blood continues to spurt from her groin, Nisha's neighbour, Luca Thompson, uses his dressing gown to staunch the bleeding. But it is all in vain. Nisha whispers, I'm scared, before passing out. And as an ambulance arrives at the scene, Nisha's brother, Caton, who lives nearby, comes running over. Seeing blood everywhere, he thinks to himself, there is no way she is going to survive this. And he immediately calls her husband, Faddy, to inform him that Nisha has been stabbed. As Faddy arrives at the scene, paramedics attempt to bring Nisha back to life. But it's not looking good. Nisha was taken to Northwick Park Hospital in nearby Middlesex. However, within five minutes of arriving at the hospital, she was dead. The knife had been plunged 13 centimetres into her groin oh. and she had literally bled to death. I don't know if you're going to go over this in, the, in like going ahead, but so the person used a knife from their home. They didn't come armed. No. Am I right to think that that's a bit weird? I think so, yeah. Yeah, that just seems like opportunistic and not really planned but that I will is come on to it. I will cover it so off. how deep yeah. was it sorry 13, 13 centimeters. centimeters oh my goodness I mean that's like you're not you know like the old, that, old rulers that you'd have mm. in school that's half of a ruler yeah reflecting later Nisha's brother Caton remembers thinking he had failed his sister he was the older brother and should have been able to protect her mm. Following the alarming incident the previous Sunday, Caton had begged his clearly distressed sister to stay with him for a while, or at least until the CCTV had been installed, but she was a strong-minded woman and refused to let these men drive her out of her home, mm. and it was a home that she had worked so hard to pay for, and boy did she work hard. By the age of 29, she'd been running her own hairdressing business, a salon called Perfections, for 11 years. 
the business had 2,000 regular clients. And wow. in order to meet that demand, Nisha worked seven days a week. Her husband, Faddy, ran the couple's limousine hire company. It was called the Limo Lounge. Oh, I don't think I like the name no. of that. <laughs> but Nisha was also involved in that business and also in her spare time, unbelievable that she, she had, had any, yeah. she volunteered as a special constable. That was what I remembered about her. I remember thinking that she was something to do with the police. And if you are wondering what a special constable is, I had limited knowledge of that concept mm. um i'll explain so basically they are um, sometimes referred to as specials um they're defined as auxiliary or part-time law enforcement officers they do hold full police powers and they're kind of designed to complement an existing police force sometimes the role is paid but that's quite rare usually it is carried out on a voluntary basis as was the case with nisha Nisha was well known locally and as a godmother to four children she wanted to make the community in which she lived a safe place and community was everything to Nisha. With both parents having passed away she didn't have much in the way of family and when she met future husband Faddy she felt as though they could make a real difference together. Faddy was born in Beirut in Lebanon and arrived in the UK to live with his father at the age of seven, having previously been cared for by his grandmother and aunt when his parents separated. He met Nisha in 2001, the same year in which his father passed away, and after an eight-month romance, the couple became engaged before marrying in May 2003. Friends described them as a happy and loving couple, and with Nisha's work ethic and business acumen, she soon propelled Faddy from fast food worker to successful businessman. Before Nisha's death, he had boasted to friends that he was making £150,000 a year, and with a flashy car and designer wardrobe to match, he certainly looked every bit the successful entrepreneur. The pressure to find Nisha's killer was already mounting. This was the murder of a fellow officer, one of their own. Police soon realised a knife was missing from the kitchen that matched the dimensions of Nisha's stab wound. And with no sign of forced entry and with Nisha's trail of blood starting in the driveway, officers began to investigate the possibility that Nisha had armed herself with a knife before heading outside to confront someone with tragic consequences. Okay, so they were thinking it was that she'd gone out with it, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Police took witness statements from Geraldine and Luca Thompson, the next-door neighbours, and Luca gave a description of the man he had seen running from the scene. He said the guy he saw running from the murder scene was an Afro-Caribbean man, heavily built, wearing a hooded top. Police went door-to-door appealing for witnesses, and two other neighbours said they had seen a man matching this description running away from the house. Learning there had been an attempted break-in at the house just five days before Nisha's murder, police discovered that one of the men from that night matched the description of the man seen running from the scene on the night of Nisha's murder. They knew these two events had to be linked. Mm. Can you? It's not going to be a yeah. coincidence, is it? It's way too much of a coincidence. Mm. So, armed with this knowledge, police now began to investigate the possibility of a burglary gone wrong. Knowing Nisha would never have answered the door to a stranger, particularly after the alarming events of that Sunday night, police speculated that her attacker may have gained entry to the house with a key. And this was all but confirmed when Faddy informed officers he had lost a set of keys in the days before the attack. 
Honestly, so some like three guys try and crowbar their way into your house, and you don't think it's more serious to worry about some keys? Like, yeah, maybe I'm too paranoid, but I think I would be changing my locks anyway, and oh, I don't know. But there was one fatal flaw in this assumption: nothing had been taken. So, if you remember, on the night of her murder, Nisha had been counting the day's takings, mm-hmm. which I think amounted to about three hundred pounds in cash. And it was still there for all to see on the sofa where she'd left it when officers entered the house after she was wow, killed. Wow, so that wasn't, it wasn't the motive. If this was a burglary, even one that ended with the assailant being confronted and the homeowner being stabbed, surely the burglar would have quickly taken the cash either before or after they were confronted. Mm, yeah. I think there would have been the opportunity to do that. So detectives had a description of the attacker and a pretty good idea about how he had gotten into the house. But if it wasn't burglary, what was the motive? The day after Nisha's death, Faddy informed detectives of the threatening phone call that he'd received from Scottish Lisa, as I'm now calling her. Scottish Lisa. Faddy, like all businessmen who deal in used cars, please refer to episode 24, The Iceman Killer, (laughs) had taken to recording his phone calls. He played a recording of this call to DCI Scola and Scola asked if he could take Faddy's phone away so they could download that recording as evidence. Clearly suspicious of Lisa, police would go on to pursue this line of inquiry, more of which in a minute, but as with all murder investigations, they knew they needed to first eliminate Faddy from their inquiries. Mm. As Nisha's nearest and dearest, he would surely be top of the list of suspects. After all, nearly half of all women murdered in this country are murdered by their partner. Faddy had a cast iron alibi for the night of his wife's murder, however. He said he had picked up his friend, a man called Nahul Desai, at 11.40pm before heading towards a snooker hall in Collindale. Detectives tracked down Desai and he confirmed this to be the case. Satisfied, the police eliminated him as a suspect and turned their attention towards Scottish Lisa. Now, I couldn't find much information out about Scottish Lisa, other than the fact that she's Scottish, she's she called Lisa, Lisa? Oh. Yeah, and she's pretty damn scary, judging by the phone mm. call that she'd made to Faddy. But when detectives did question her, they drew a blank. She had a credible alibi and just clearly didn't do it. And I'm guessing she was probably, although she came across as really scary in that phone call, she was probably mortified when she learnt that Nisha had died Mm -hmm. just two months after she'd made those threats. I also think if you're the sort of person who will ring up and shout down the phone you're probably not actually Barry Big Bollocks in real life. Oh, I love that Barry Big Bollocks. Yeah, it's a good phrase. But, like, do you know what I mean? I think if you're the sort of person who's going to go do that because you want to get your own back, you'd make a threat, like a a quiet threat, or you would do something. I feel like Scottish Lisa has had her knickers in a twist, which is fair enough because he did piss her off, and she's just got a bit stressy. Phone call... And now, yeah, I imagine now the police are there and she's like, shit, I shouldn't have made that phone call. Yeah, I think you're right. Barry Big Bollocks or Belinda Big Bollocks, we could call her. Lisa Big Bollocks. Lisa Big Bollocks. But over the phone. Not as much alliteration. Over the phone rather Um, than in person, yeah. And I did think the same. I thought, to be fair, yeah, Faddy had kind of screwed with her and she probably just had a bottle of wine, was a bit pissed Mm -hmm. off and you know, made that call and said some things that she wouldn't ordinarily say. Having said that, I do think she's pretty scary still. She does sound scary. Three days after Nisha's murder, having ruled out the obvious suspects, the investigation hit a brick wall. Mm. 
Whilst they knew Nisha had been stabbed with one of her own kitchen knives and they had a pretty good description of the man responsible, they had been unable to locate the murder weapon and forensics had also drawn a blank at the house. Detectives decided to make a public appeal on Crime Watch and both Caton and Faddy appealed for help in catching Nisha's killer. Staring at the camera, Faddy said, Obviously someone has got a guilty conscience. They'll be worrying about what they have done or be shocked or maybe it was an accident or a mistake or whatever. Faddy appeared nervous and was clearly struggling as he addressed the viewers at home, which to be fair is completely understandable. Mm. This was just days or a week or so after his wife was murdered. Unfortunately, despite Faddy and Caton's best attempts, the appeal was unsuccessful. Nisha's murder had garnered mass media coverage. A woman, a special constable, had been murdered outside her home in an apparently motiveless attack. What's more, this had happened in Wembley, an area that is pretty familiar to everybody in the UK, an area that is largely middle class. If Nisha could be murdered in the safety of her own home, then surely this could happen to anyone. The pressure was on and police knew if they stood any chance of finding the person or persons responsible, they needed to locate the kitchen knife. Working on a hunch, DCI Scola anticipated that Nisha's killer would have disposed of the knife close to the scene. Consequently, he tasked his team with searching the surrounding area. For two painstaking weeks, officers scoured in bushes, bins and drains, and just as they were about to give up on the 25th of May, they struck gold. Discarded in a blocked drain in nearby Harrowdean Road was what they had spent the past two weeks looking for. And what's more, this was the only drain they had looked in that had a CCTV camera nearby. Oh my god, what a lucky break for the police. Whilst the camera didn't cover the drain itself, detectives decided to review the footage from the night of the murder, just in case. And, sure enough, two minutes after Nisha's attacker had fled the murder scene, a car could be seen pulling up close by, where it stopped for seven seconds before moving on. Surely this was too much of a coincidence for it not to be related to the murder. As the car drove off, it came into the camera's range, and although the footage was grainy, owing to the fact it was pretty much midnight now, police were able to identify it as a silver Audi A4. Unfortunately, the number plate was not visible, and no matter how much they tried to enhance the footage, there was no way they could make it out. But all was not lost, as experts were able to identify two unique features on the car. One, it had a roof-mounted aerial, not standard issue for an Audi A4, and two, the left-hand rear number plate light was out. The knife was sent off to the lab for analysis, however, the results were disappointingly predictable. The only DNA present belonged to Nisha, and whilst fingerprints were present, it was soon established that these belonged to a friend of Nisha's. This friend was completely ruled out of the inquiry and had nothing to do with the murder. You probably just helped her, like, putting some dishes away or something. Or were just kind of cooking with her on a nice evening in together. Oh, that's so frustrating. Days soon turned into weeks, and as Nisha's funeral came and went, police were seriously struggling to progress their investigation. It would take three long months before police got a breakthrough. Having confiscated Faddy's phone as evidence, one officer just happened to stumble across some photos that sparked their interest. 
One photo showed the seductive face of a white female pouting at the camera, obviously not Nisha, and another showed a woman's thigh. It looked like it had been taken in a hotel room, and the officer escalated their concerns to DCI Scola. Suspicious that Faddy had been having an affair behind his wife's back, Scola met with Faddy and asked him outright, were you having an affair at the time of your wife's murder? Faddy looked him straight in the eye and said no. Within a matter of hours, however, Faddy had called his family liaison officer, Sid Chenoy, to say that yes, he had been having an affair, but had not wanted to admit that due to the shame and guilt that he felt. However, having had time to reflect, he realised that it was important that he was honest with the police. Like, I maybe it will turn out to be more than just an affair, but that is really shitty, isn't it? That, like, having an affair is a rubbish thing to do, and that is really crap, but imagine you're having an affair, and then, like, I mean, he probably wasn't even playing snooker, he was probably with this woman or something, knowing that then your wife's been killed and you've been doing that, like, that's just... It's bad, it's obviously yeah. a really bad thing to do, but, yeah, can you imagine the kind the of guilt, guilt that yeah, person would feel? Absolutely, yeah. no wonder he didn't want to admit to it. Yeah. Fadi had met Laura Mokien, a 26-year-old Lithuanian national, a few months before his wife was killed. Laura had a six-year-old daughter who was about to undergo a brain operation, and Fadi had become a kind of strength of support for her at this time. A relationship developed, and the two became very close, even travelling abroad together, with Fadi telling Nisha he was going to visit a sick relative. Police believed Laura was madly in love with Faddy and wanted his wife out of the way. Perhaps she had been begging Faddy to leave Nisha. Perhaps she got fed up of waiting and decided to take matters into her own hands. Perhaps that's all bullshit because although she was arrested on suspicion of Nisha's murder on the 1st of September, she was subsequently released and all charges were dropped. She had an alibi and there was no other evidence to suggest she had anything to do with the murder. In fact, she had never put pressure on Faddy to leave his wife and was quite happy with the arrangement that they had. Police did, however, become more suspicious of Faddy at this point. Happy to play the grieving widower in front of the cameras, he was still secretly seeing this mistress. Not the behaviour you would expect from somebody who had just lost their wife. Yeah. You'd think you'd at least say to your mistress, I'm going to have to put it on hold for a bit. Yeah, honestly. or you'd be so shocked and guilty that you'd be like, it's done. Yeah. Faddy wasn't the sort of person he portrayed himself as, and while they didn't think him capable of murdering his wife, they were suspicious that he was withholding information and may have known who killed Nisha. I think this is the thing. He's clearly not the nice guy that he's portraying himself no. because we know about the Scottish Lisa side where yeah. he just went up there and took the car back. He's a ruthless businessman. He sold her a Dodge car anyway. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. So police looked into his background in more detail and the results amazed them. They discovered that Faddy regularly frequented brothels and it was at one brothel in Victoria in central London that Faddy had met Laura. He would see her regularly as a client initially, with the two later falling for each other and starting a different kind of relationship. Oh, Stuart, One, if that wasn't like part of a murder case, that's quite a sweet story to happen. It is really. It's like Pretty Woman, isn't it? Yeah. And I said, really, that's the kind of relationship where Cash didn't need to change hands before sex. Aww. Which is romantic. Which is the dream. That's the dream. <laughs> yeah, we all hope for that. Oh, bless. But I'm sure, again, there's more to it than just... 
Fatty was all too familiar with the sex industry. When he met Nisha in 2001, he was running an escort business imaginatively entitled Seventh Heaven. And he was doing this in between shifts at Top Pizza in East Finchley. He had a one-bedroom flat which he had several girls work out of and Nisha did know about this. However, she wasn't happy about it and had persuaded him to shut down the escort business. Fatty had agreed and Nietzsche stumped up £15,000 of her own money to set up the limousine hire company. Although Nietzsche was involved in the business, it belonged to Fatty and he was in charge of it on a day-to-day basis. But he was rubbish at business and at the time of Nietzsche's murder, he had a total of £100,000 in business and personal debts. Oh, considering she'd put like her own money to start off his business and stuff. Furthermore, Fatty had a previous conviction for dangerous driving and had served nine months in prison three years before he had met Nisha. Had he met some dodgy people in prison, perhaps? Police still had Fatty's phone and had started to go through his contacts in order to shed some more light on his character. A familiar name cropped up, a name that was well known to the police. A man called Roger Leslie had been in contact with Fatty on the day of his wife's murder. Roger Leslie from Barnet in North London was a well-known heroin dealer with weapons convictions. He was a known enforcer, and if you see pictures, you will totally understand Mm. why. He is probably the scariest person I have ever laid eyes on. Do you know what? I'll make sure I get a picture of him then to go. We've got to get a great picture on Instagram and all of our social media platforms. He's really scary. He's got like I don't know, like ten silver studs in his face, all around his face. His head is huge. He's a massive guy. Um, yeah, just really, really scary. Interesting. I'll definitely have a look at him. He also matched the description of the well-built black male running away from the scene of the murder. Phone records showed Faddy and Leslie had been in contact on the day of the murder with call activity peaking around the time of Nietzsche's attack. Police wondered if Faddy had perhaps met Roger Leslie while he served time in prison. Maybe Fatty had borrowed money from him in order to keep his struggling business afloat. Maybe he was struggling to pay him back. Maybe Nisha had been murdered as a warning. Had Roger Leslie gone to the door to collect a debt that night? DC Paul Webb interrogated Roger Leslie. He later remarked that the tough guy exterior belied a softly spoken calm man. Leslie denied any involvement in the murder and DC Webb told him he was free to go. But behind the scenes, police continued to pursue Leslie as a possible suspect. Around this time, police became aware that Fadi had been using a number of different mobile phones since his had been taken as evidence the day after his wife's murder. Someone had witnessed him cutting up SIM cards and decided to report this to the police. Consequently, detectives decided to ask Faddy to hand over any mobile phones he had used in the interests of progressing the investigation. Faddy agreed, and he kind of couldn't not agree, I suppose. And police trawled through every call he had made and received since his wife's death. They noticed that he had called Leslie on a number of significant dates, including on the 25th of May, the day the murder weapon was found. Officers had informed him of the find, so he would have known that Mm, at the time. Suspicious. Officers now attempted to see if Leslie's phone could be traced to the Wembley area on the night of the murder. However, it showed he was miles away. 
Undeterred, they looked closer and noticed that every time Faddy had called Leslie on the night of Nisha's murder, Leslie had called a second number, a number belonging yeah. to a man called Tony Emmanuel. Tony Emmanuel was a low-level East End criminal with no association to the Wembley area, yet his phone records pinpointed him there on the night of the murder. What's more, he owned a silver Audi A4, and when the police examined this, they saw the two distinctive features they had noticed in that CCTV footage. The roof-mounted aerial and the missing rear number plate light. This That really reminds me of, um, I don't know if you saw the programme, but there's recently been a programme on ITV, I think it was, really well done, about the Humphrey-Levi Belfield yeah, I miss that. Yeah, it's so good. Like, it's a three-part to watch it. Loads of our listeners have been watching it and we're talking about it on social media. But it's one of those things where, I mean, in this ca- in the case of Levi Belfield, the detective in charge was like, right, we're searching for all these vehicles that have got the same features and we're going to look at whether they've got this feature or that feature. So interesting and so clever. Officers actually said with this there were 18,000 silver Audi A4s mm. in the country at oh, that I time. Bet. Um, and it was almost like a bit of a running joke. Anytime any officer in London saw a silver mm-hmm. Audi A4, they had to kind of go up to it God, and have a look would, at it. You? Yeah, you'd get obsessed, I think. I think so. And that was really a bit of an impossible task. I don't think they'd have ever located that had they not analysed the phone records yeah. and come across it had this to be a link. association. Yeah. Mm. The walls were starting to close in and it would only be a matter of time now before police finally discovered exactly why Nisha was murdered and by whom. Police arrested Emmanuel on the 6th of December. Over three days of questioning, he refused to acknowledge any involvement in Nisha's murder. However, when officers advised him they were now formally questioning Faddy on suspicion of his wife's murder, he finally admitted that he had been to the house that night, but only to drive his associate Jason Jones there. Jones had told him he was picking up £40,000 worth of cocaine from the boot of Faddy's limousine. Jason Jones was a bouncer and club promoter from Manor Park in North East London. He was a man with a fearsome reputation, with a list of previous convictions literally as long as his arm. I think he had 76. Wow. Police knew him and they knew he was the sort of person capable of murder. And what's more, they knew that he also knew Roger Leslie. Police now suspected Faddy had contacted Leslie to organise the murder of his wife. Leslie had then employed Jason Jones to carry out the hit and Jones had employed Emmanuel to drive him. But why did Faddy want Nisha dead? This is literally my main question for you. We know he was having an affair, but we also know that Laura hadn't put any pressure on him to leave his wife. Faddy's motives didn't lie in lust, but they lay in greed and pride. Police discovered Faddy's debts, but more alarmingly, they discovered that three months prior to Nisha's death, Faddy had taken out life cover on her to the value of £300,000. This is always the thing, if there's life cover... To mm. be fair, though, they had taken it out on each other. Um, but yeah, but you was, would, wouldn't you? Yeah, that was probably to make it look less suspicious. Oh. I mean, obviously, everyone should have life cover if you get a mortgage and stuff, and I'm not saying everybody yeah. who ever gets life cover is planning to kill their partner, but whenever you listen or like you read about a case with true crime, it's like, oh, it's always red a flag. Concern, isn't it? Yeah, it reminds me of the guy that tried to kill his wife by tampering with her parachute. Yeah. And she jumped out of the plane yeah. and, like, miraculously survived. How did she survive? I mean, that's a crazy case. I'd love to cover that. That's, that and was I think close he to where I live. Cover. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wiltshire. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, that we was, should look that at was that. the same thing, yeah. 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 Always suspicious. Along with any capital in the house and the businesses, Faddy stood to gain over half a million pounds from his wife's death. Police still needed evidence, though. On the night of the killing, Faddy had taken a call in his car after picking up his friend. Desai, his friend, told officers he remembered Faddy taking that call and he remembers Faddy telling the caller that he didn't have his diary with him at that time and therefore couldn't take a booking. Faddy told Desai that it had been someone looking to book a limo but when the police looked at the call records they could see the call was from Leslie. Just seconds earlier Leslie had received a call from Jason Jones at the scene of the murder. Detectives concluded that the call was most likely to confirm to Faddy that Nietzsche's murder had been carried out. On the 27th of February, police arrested Faddy on suspicion of the murder of his wife and the next day Faddy, Leslie, Emmanuel and Jones were all charged with the murder of Nisha Patel Nasri. When the case came to trial one year later, Michael Worsley QC set out his case for the prosecution. He said Faddy was a failure in business and in marriage. He put it to the jury that Faddy had paid Roger Leslie £15,000 to orchestrate his wife's murder and had also provided him with house keys so the killer could let himself in. He said Leslie had hired Jones to carry out the murder and in turn Jones had hired Emmanuel to drive him that night. All Faddy had to do was create an alibi for himself and make sure Nietzsche was going to be home. He said at around 10.30 on the night of Nisha's murder, Emmanuel drove into Wembley, stopping about three miles away from Nisha's house, presumably to await further instructions. He said Faddy had probably not even told Nisha that he was going out to play snooker. Mm. There was no need. He probably just lied to her and said, I'm literally just popping out for 10 minutes. I've got to make a call or something. As soon as Faddy left, Jones set off towards the house. As the killer made his way to her home, Nisha busied herself in the kitchen making the liquid for a chocolate fountain before counting the takings from her hairdressing salon and getting ready for bed. I do love a chocolate fountain. Don't Just we all? put that out there. Mm. I this found is... that a bit weird that she was in the kitchen making yeah. a chocolate fountain, but there must have been a valid Maybe they were going to have it the next yeah. day or something. Yeah. God, it's just horrible, isn't it, that he's done... Like, oh, I don't know, yeah. it's just horrific. It is, absolutely, yeah. Michael Worsley QC said the sequence of events was then as follows. While Nisha is upstairs, Jones lets himself in with a key given to him by Faddy before grabbing the knife from the kitchen. When Nisha finds him in the house, rather than confront him, she makes for the front door, but before she can make it to safety, Jones grabs her and stabs her deep into the groin. Jones runs after her to finish what he started, but with Nisha's screams now drawing the attention of neighbours, he has no choice but to give up and leave. He then calls Leslie to let him know what's happened, and Leslie calls Faddy to inform him in a call that Faddy tried to pass off as a client looking to book a limo. The trial heard that whilst Nisha appeared to be happily married to the majority of her friends, she had confided in some that she was considering divorce. She desperately wanted a baby and had stopped using contraception. However, she had told friends that Faddy was not interested in sex and refused to touch her. The jury was told that divorce would have ruined Faddy. Nisha owned the house, the salon. All Faddy owned was the limousine hire company, which was massively in debt. 
Perhaps Nisha had threatened him with divorce and that was when he put the plan into action, first persuading her that they should take out life insurance and then making contact with Leslie. The court was told that Faddy had paid off all of his debts after Nisha's murder and what's more he'd set up home with his Lithuanian mistress. Additionally, five months after her death, he had instructed lawyers to extract Nisha's share of her late parents' house, a house that her brother lived in. Had Faddy's lawyers succeeded in their client's interests, Caton would have been forced to sell the family home. In a victim impact statement read to the court, Caton said, There are no words that can describe the pain I suffer in losing my little Nisha and he described her murder as a brutal, savage and vicious attack. It's horrific as well because when someone you love then gets married, you expect that that person's going to be the one, especially like um, for this guy, it's his sister. So he felt, and he did say he felt responsible for her and that sort of thing. You then would think that the man that she's married is also going to be the, you know, it's really old fashioned, but the one who protects her and that sort of thing. And so I can understand how horrible it must be for him. And he's such a nice guy. He'd actually taken Faddy into his home mm. after Nisha had been murdered because obviously the house was sealed would, off. You? Yeah. yeah, he'd kind of taken him in and they provided for Faddy financially at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was completely abused. Bless him. Just going back to the knife, the mm. fact that, you, you know, you made yeah. that point earlier, it was really valid and I thought the same. All I can really assume, I don't know why they didn't take a murder weapon with them. All I can assume is that Faddy had told Roger Leslie, who in turn had told Jason Jones, the guy committing the murder, that when you go in, you need to yeah. go into the kitchen. It's straight ahead and there's two knife blocks in the kitchen. Yeah. Just take a knife. I don't know. Maybe it would be a bit more suspicious if you're driving around with a weapon in your car before. Could be. There must have been a valid reason yeah. for it. But, but I wondered the same myself and that's all I could think. Mm. In their defence, Emmanuel and Leslie claimed they were only involved in a drugs deal while Jones said he was nowhere near Wembley on the night of the killing. Leslie admitted setting up a £40,000 cocaine deal at Faddy's house on the night of the killing and said he was due to pick up the drugs from the back of Faddy's stretch limo. And I do a lot of, there's a lot of reference to drugs and the police did kind of look into that. Was Faddy involved in dealing drugs? Mm. Is that how we knew these guys? But they searched the house, they searched all of his cars and they never found any trace of drugs. So I think that was just like a bullshit excuse. It's like... We're going to trash this guy's Mm. reputation and say, yeah, we weren't there for good reasons. We were up to no good, but we certainly weren't looking to murder someone. Mm. We were purely there to collect drugs. But I did always wonder, was there something in that? It could be like a better the devil you know sort of thing. If these guys are involved in drugs and stuff, that's just something they know about. So when they start talking about an excuse... I think you also, you need something that's Mm semi-plausible. If you're admitting that you were at the house, you need some... Mm-hmm. Semi-decent Definitely excuse. Definitely agree. And that is believable. Mm-hmm. But he claimed his car had broken down and he'd got Jones to make the pickup. Faddy insisted he had never been involved in a drugs deal and had never planned to have his wife killed. He said no murder at all whatsoever, no plan. That's what he told the court. When confronted with the evidence, however, Faddy's claims of innocence disintegrated. And on the 25th of June in 2008, he was convicted of his wife's murder and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 20 years. Judge Peter Beaumont told Faddy he had betrayed the trust he owed Nisha, who he described as a loyal, loving and supportive wife. 
Roger Leslie was also sentenced to life in prison and told he must serve a minimum of 18 years. And Jason Jones, the guy who actually stabbed her, was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 20 years, the same as Faddy. The jury believed Tony Emmanuel's defence and he was acquitted of all charges. Wow. After the trial, events took a sad turn when the media destroyed Nietzsche's reputation. Headlines went from describing her as a loving wife and godmother to a vice madam and somebody who abused their position of responsibility for financial gain. Two years before her death, she had used her warrant card to help Faddy collect a debt that was owed to Seventh Heaven. Oh dear. The Metropolitan Police investigated at the time and Nisha was issued with a warning. She was also accused of driving escorts to and from clients' houses and also of verbally abusing the escorts, forcing them to work even when they were unwell, claiming they were losing her money. But then, equally, I thought it was that she told Fanny to stop doing that when they'd got together, so... Yeah. Who do you believe, I suppose? Well, I mean, police did investigate these claims after Mm. her death. However, they found no evidence to substantiate any involvement in Seventh Heaven Mm -hmm. or the vice trade um, other than the collection of that debt. So, you know, I really think it's important to say that there was no foundation Mm -hmm. to those claims. And I think using your warrant card to go help you over half collect debt, that that is a shitty thing to do. But also, the way that it was dealt with by her superiors was how it should have been, I imagine. and I'm surprised she wasn't dismissed from a role for that. But They equally, must have investigated enough and said, do you know what, a warning is enough. Yeah, it was obviously they followed yeah. their dis- disciplinary procedure. Exactly. It was all on record. They could refer back to mm-hmm. that. And for all we know, Faddy had some kind of control over her. I don't yeah. know. She was quite strong-willed. But he probably did coerce her into using that position of responsibility to get that money that was owed to them. And if she'd not had a single black mark against her name... The whole time that she'd been a special constable, it could have been, it's your first infraction. And her brother Caton said that. Mm-hmm. He said one small mistake has yeah. trashed her reputation. And it led to those subsequent stories of her, you know, driving mm-hmm. the escorts, which were completely unsubstantiated. Interestingly, it later came out that Fadi's bad character was inherited from his father. Farouk Mohammed Nasri had hanged himself in 2001, shortly before his son had met Nisha. He was on remand at Leicester Prison after his girlfriend Jennifer Elverson and her son had died in a house fire at their home in Derby. He was accused of dousing them in petrol oh, before Christ. setting the house ablaze. For Caton, he is determined to remember his sister as the strong-minded and determined person who achieved so much in such a short time. And it's a, it's a sad case of greed, and I think all the sadder for Nietzsche's reputation having been trashed after her death, but hopefully we've been able to, in a small way, set the record straight for our listeners, because mm. I do remember this case, and I do remember those headlines after her murder. And that's remember. all it's I remember. I, I remember yeah. that was my lasting memory, was that she was involved in mm. that. Um, but um, that clearly wasn't the case. I'm glad you've done a bit of a Bethan and ended it with her brother's nice thing. I did it yeah, on purpose, and I thought for our premiere done. of season two, we've mm, got to. You know I like to do that. That can be our trademark now. <laughs> it's a nice way to end it. So we hope you found today's case interesting. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us in all of the usual ways to let us know what you thought about today's episode. Um, we're on Instagram. I think we should have about a 1,000 followers now, so come and join the party. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we're also on Facebook where we have a closed group, I think. Yeah. yeah Bethan's admin, so um, just request to join that. We have great discussions on there. It's yeah, really, good. really interesting. Um, we're also on that middle class emporium that is Twitter. Which I'm really not very you hate Twitter. I don't good like at Twitter. yet. And I am trying really hard. So tweet us and if I know what I'm doing, I'll tweet you back. But yeah, come and chat to us. And if you would like to support the show financially and contribute towards our running costs, then you can head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. Until next time, then we uh, will see you then. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Don't forget we have partnered with Just Killing Time subscription box. Yeah, so if you want to get 10% off a subscription where they send you out a monthly box of true crime goodies, you can use our code. Which is Seeing Red Pod. And you'll get 10% off for the lifetime of your subscription. So it's not like a one-off saving. It's really, really good. Um, They send you out a box full of goodies each month. And we'll put some links on our social media pages Mm -hmm. so you can see what they're all about. Definitely. The Unseen Podcast, we look at cases of missing people, unresolved investigations, and above all, we focus on UK true crime. So if you want to listen to UK cases and care about little-known stories that might have been forgotten about, then we are the podcast for you. Join me, Caprice, every Sunday as we delve into these stories. You can find The Unseen Podcast anywhere you are currently listening and I hope you can join me in discussing forgotten and unresolved cases.